Today's interview is with Charlie Hone, a dear friend. He's an author, a TEDx speaker, and is probably most notably known for being Tim Ferriss' director of special projects and help edit and launch The 4-Hour Body. He's got so much information to share with you, and I can't wait for you to listen in on our conversation. Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. All right, we're here today with Charlie Hone. So glad you're here, brother. It's like having a reunion since we just saw each other a few weeks ago, but glad you're here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk to a good friend. So thanks for having me, Azul. Yeah, I'm really appreciative of you. I think in part because I feel extremely vulnerable when I talk to you, which I think is good. I think that means that I'm usually talking about something that matters. And writing matters to me because it exposes what's inside of you if you let it. Yeah. 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 It, and I, I feel the same way. And I think it's it comes from a mutual place of uh, trust and respect. And you in particular, I think could write a book on being a good listener. And I'm sure, I don't know for your listeners, if they're like, all right, get to the good stuff, guys. But I do want to emphasize that you are a fantastic listener. Thank you, Charlie. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely, I'm trying to grow in that because I think for a long time, I don't think I was. I'd like to think I was, but I don't think I really was paying attention. So maybe I was hearing, but not listening. So that's really a big compliment. Mm -hmm. Thanks for Mm -hmm. that. So You know, oftentimes I think about writing and I wonder if it's for you the way it was for me. I think there was something in me that always wanted to be a writer, even though I wasn't a big fan of English class, mainly because I wasn't good at it. But I always fancied story. So for me, it was pretty young age whenever I could get someone's attention. And a lot of times I had to perform it because I couldn't write as well. But did you always have a sense that you wanted to be a writer or that you had it in you? I never wanted to be a writer. I still don't necessarily <laughs> it, it, like want to be a writer. It's more of a necessity and it's like the fastest way to create. So I think of myself as an ideas person and the best way to materialize those ideas and, and give them shape in the fastest, most efficient way to do it is through writing. So whether that's putting out a thoughtful article or an essay of some sort or a collection of some idea that I see taking shape in a different industry or even if it's just writing a comedy sketch that I end up filming with my friends, the best way to do it is through writing. It clarifies your thinking. It allows you to communicate the idea with another individual. I think even faster and more efficiently than speaking it. So... Yeah, that makes sense. I know for me, I think it was always hard to articulate what I was feeling inside to the depth Mm -hmm. that I wanted to. But it doesn't mean that speaking was any better. I just felt like because I had a stifled voice because I was worried about my dyslexia, I was worried about being judged for how it came across. I think the idea always got pushed to the very back. So I used the simplest idea I could tell without being afraid to get judged. So I think for the longest time, I don't think I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell stories. I think that's why it's served me well in helping people find the story because I'm listening for that. I'm listening for, well, I hear you saying this stuff about content and you're really good at it, but what's the story underneath all of it? Because that's the part that interests me the most. And that's how we're hardwired, right? You want to tell a story. 
and you want to hear a story. You don't want to hear somebody's advice. And that's actually what I tell every single guest who comes onto my podcast is I say, start with a story that people can identify with. Don't give them advice. <laughs> don't talk about your book. Don't do any of the things that you're tempted to do as somebody who's speaking to an audience, which is, I want to impress them. I want to, what it, like, humans are hardwired for stories. Right. I think I realized this the other day, Charlie, I was talking to my son just, and he has, he's had a tough year, but he's resilient in the sense that he's learned a lot from it. And we were having a long conversation the other day for like an hour and a half, which if anybody has, you know, children, they're under the age of 21. That's a really long time to converse with your, <laughs> with your child. But I think it's because he's becoming his own person, an adult. And one of the things that struck me was he said something that I really found interesting was that I make meaning of the world through understanding the way other people see it. And mm -hmm. I thought, holy smokes, what a great thing that is to discover at such a young age. And then also he realized that that's what school wasn't. It never let you slow down enough to think see the world through other people's eyes. And I think that's a little bit about what writing does, right? It lets you step through the lens of other people. Yeah, it's a fantastic point, which is it allows you to gain empathy and see perspective from, see the world from another person's perspective. I mean, going back to the point of speaking is not as efficient because you have all these obstacles that you're having to deal with in real time, right? You're having to deal with your own internal emotional state while you're doing it, while you're presenting these ideas to other people. You have to be good at judging your audience and speaking to them, making sure that they're on board with you while you're communicating the, these ideas. It's, it's way harder. But when you're writing, all you have to do is communicate the idea well or the story well, and then whoever reads it is listening to you. And they're actually giving more weight to whatever it is that you're saying. And to your point, Azul, of, of building empathy and compassion for people through writing, I got in a heated argument fairly recently. I think it was a few months back because someone said nonfiction, you know, or I'm sorry, fiction books, I think are just kind of a waste of time. I got to deal with reality. And I was like, how could you possibly say that? Because fiction is not only like exercising the imagination, like every movie basically comes from a fiction book first and all of us love fiction movies. And more importantly, is you are still gaining compassion, empathy, a new perspective on the world. Like even if it's fiction, it still comes from a human being and it's grounded in their reality. You know, we're not talking about completely non-fictional aliens that don't have feelings and or we're not writing fiction about bacteria who have no <laughs> they have no idea of the world around them or the human world around them. We're writing about people and their feelings always. So even if it's fiction, you're still learning about another person. So I remember like feeling my blood boil <laughs> when they <laughs> said that. I was like, that is such a poorly formed opinion about fiction and storytelling. Yeah. I had a young author here on the show and he was talking to me about the thing he looks for the most is 
fantasy is the depth of relatability to the main character. Mm-hmm. He says, that's the most important part to me. He goes, I'm creating a whole other world. And yet some of that is replicating other worlds. Obviously, we all know that we recognize, but that character has to seem so much like you or so likable that you yeah. follow them to this journey. And to know how to make somebody likable by an audience who you can never see or touch or, you know what I mean? I think so that to me, that's the complexity of understanding the humanity, the qualities within somebody or in others, really, to make a story resonate. Right. And well, I don't even necessarily think it's likability. I think it's what you first said is relatability, identifiability. You know, this is actually the number one rule of screenwriting is it's all about the character and the audience has to identify with the character. A great example of this is Marty McFly in Back to the Future. You know, he starts the movie off with being like the coolest kid ever. You know, he's a rock. He plays in a rock band and he's good. He's dating the most beautiful girl in school. He skateboards on the back of cars. Like that's <laughs> awesome. And but he's got low self-esteem. Yeah. He's got really low self-esteem. He gets picked on by the principal and his dad and his family. His, his dad's just kind of a wuss and a pushover. And he lives in kind of a house where things are a mess and whatever. And you just identify with him. And it's the same with Walter White, who is not a likable character. Right. Uh, he is an identifiable character, somebody who gets diagnosed with cancer. And he realizes, man, I'm in over my head. I don't want to tell my family about this. We don't have enough money. Like when when his wife in that first episode is like, you use the wrong credit card. We only do this on these credit cards, you know, and it's some like minor expense. It's only like 10 bucks or something. And (laughs) it's just like, gosh, how many people can identify with this? And so I think you don't necessarily have to even be likable. You just have to be somebody that you identify with. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think the idea that you can find some quality, whether even a villain within human existence, right? And mm-hmm. I was wondering, because your book Played Away was a book, actually it was the first book that really opened up my eyes to, not to mental illness, but to our lack of understanding about the simple things in life that make a huge, profound impact. And, you know, I always wondered if, if you had a lack of the simple things. As yeah. Well? well, like play to me is a simple thing. We've taken out simple activities that make a big difference. Listening is another simple activity saying yes or no, like just making a simple decision. But we've created, I feel like an overcomplicated sense of what's good for us or not good for us. And I think play to me is such a powerful tool. And I think I didn't, I was trying to think, because I have, you know, we have challenges in my own family with mental illness. And I feel like the things that I was looking to do to solve it seemed so massively overwhelming to me. Hmm. And I think that book helped me understand. Overwhelming? Yeah. Which things were you considering? Well, I was overwhelmed by the fact that there's treatment and then there's Hmm. therapy. Then there's what kind of therapy? There's group therapy, there's sessions, individual sessions, then there's medication and there's follow-up and then there's, you know, healthy habits, change in perspective. Like it all became, it was creating its overwhelming problem when I felt like 
what you were sharing in that book was helping me understand that there's something to be done about my own life in the regards to play. You know, it's not far away from me as well to not understand the depth of my, you know, ability to let go and just have fun. Yeah. Do you think you could tell that, retell that story, play it away, but in fiction? Does it work the same, nonfiction and fiction? <laughs> could you share the same learning? Are you asking me to retell it as a fiction right now, or are you asking theoretically? <laughs> no, theoretically, I think. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's close enough to a fiction in a way for us. <laughs> right. Like the lifestyle I was living, I think, was kind of extreme and at the fringes enough that people are like, wow, this is like, this is crazy in the context of how I got to the point that I got to. Now, the story begins with something that is very identifiable with people who struggle with anxiety and burnout, right? Is describing how I felt, the physical symptoms, what it was like internally day to day. And then the second chapter is about what was going on on the outside, the conditions that led to that internal state. So I think it would actually be pretty easy to do that because all I have to do is make the outside world even louder or make it, you know, a different character. Right. But the feelings are the same. Did you feel like it was hard to relate to other people? I don't know how many people have read Play It Away who are listening, but maybe you could set it up a little bit. But did you feel like your life was so unrelatable that even if you try to express to them why you you were feeling what you're feeling, they couldn't relate? That's a great question because I think everybody who's struggling with that stuff is convinced that no one else is struggling with it because no one else's external life is the exact same, Mm. right? So I'll set up the book a little bit. The book is basically about how I went through a period of roughly two years where I was struggling with debilitating anxiety and burnout. So I was locking myself up in my apartment, isolating myself from my friends and other people because I didn't want them to catch my contagious energy, which was like constant worrying, sometimes paranoia. There was physical symptoms of you know rapid heart rate. Just It was constant dread, basically. And Anybody who's experienced it knows it's really not fun, especially if you're having panic attacks and this sort of thing. And I just kind of quietly, secretly suffered through this because I was really embarrassed and ashamed to go through it because I didn't really fully understand why I felt this way. You know, I on the outside, I had a dream job uh, working with Tim Ferriss for years and that had gone really well for a long time. And then all of a sudden I was dealing with this stuff. And, and on the outside, you know, I, externally, there were other factors that came into play. You know, on one weekend, a family member died, a close friend attempted suicide and a deadline for a huge project we had got pushed back several months. And, and I was in this very prestigious position, right? And so I felt like, man, no one... Certainly no one in my peer group fully understands what I'm going through. They couldn't possibly have felt the way I feel 
which is horrible. You know, it feels like you're living in your own internal hell. But, you know, after I got through that period, which is what the book is about, is like, I tried everything, nothing worked. But the one thing that sort of unlocked my way to my own personal cure was through play, both the way I thought of the world and perceived things that were happening and, and being more playful and not so serious and worried all the time to actually incorporating play into my daily routine. So that kind of unlocked everything, got me through it. But what I learned from talking with, since that book was published, thousands and thousands of people who've experienced the exact same feelings, but just had different external circumstances going on, you know, that they hold back for the same reasons I held back. They're ashamed and they think no one must understand what they're going through. And there's a stigma, you know, they don't want to end up on addictive pills. They don't want to be put in a hospital. They don't want to go through all this intense treatment or expensive treatment in some cases. So that's why I wrote that book. I was desperately searching for that type of solution, which was natural, free, common sense, didn't require any dangerous or expensive therapies, that sort of thing. And, you know, a friend of mine, she was, she opened up to me because she was the assistant to the CEO of a Fortune 10 company, I think, one of the biggest companies in the world. And, she finally opened up to me because she read my book. She said, I'm going through the exact same thing. Yeah. And and she thought I was the only one who could possibly understand. And the reality is anybody who's going through this stuff will understand you. You know, there's millions of people struggling with this stuff. Millions and millions and millions of people struggling. And all you have to do is look on YouTube. You have all these confession videos that have come out over right. the years. So it's super common. It is something I am not afraid of at all happening to me again. And if it does, I know the cure and I've seen it cure. I've had numerous people, two women in particular, who came up to me after either a speaking gig or wrote me an email. And they said, I've been on high dose anxiety meds for 20 years and I incorporated play into my life and it dissolved. and It was gone. And nothing else had worked. And like, it's no bullshit. Like, they actually were able to overcome it. It works for pretty much everyone. There's, I'm not saying, like, obviously, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a licensed therapist or anything. I'm just yeah. a guy who was like desperately searching for that information and find a massive gap, both online and in books, that no one was talking about this approach, which was grounded in how we evolved and what we've just gotten away from. Yeah, that's an incredible, I think, testament to not only did you work through it for yourself and help others from the stage and close friends, but you put it out there to stake a claim and look, I'm not going to wait for some sort of person to don me the expert of play. I'm just going to share my story and what I, what will help me, it could help you too. And I think that that's the thing. A lot of people come to me when I'm helping them with books and they ask, they But worry. I'm not an expert. That's exactly. I'm not an expert. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. thank goodness. 
because experts don't have a lot to say that they've experienced themselves. They've right. just studied other people's experiments. and ex- Exactly. Exactly. I was speaking actually at an association for therapy through humor. And so everybody in the room was a medical professional, licensed therapist, somebody there to learn about like the science of humor. And I came to this thing and I was like, gosh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how much I'm going to be. All I have is my story, right? These guys have all this research and stuff. A, none of them had published books or if they had, they were pretty dry, you know? And two, none of them could really present on the topic in a way that was identifiable. It's exactly what you said is experts are in their field doing studies and looking at patients and talking about their patients' experiences and not theirs. So just because you don't have a piece of paper telling the world like this person paid a lot of money to be called an expert does not mean you are not an expert. If you have experienced life in a way that others have not or overcome a problem that a lot of people struggle with, you're an expert. Right. And that's the thing I want people to know. And this is the thing I think after being a teacher for so many years, people were like, well, is this a best practice? I go, how do you think a best practice starts? It just like pops up perfect one day. Like (laughs) best practice is just someone's done it enough that you don't feel embarrassed to try it or get blamed or fired. Like it's not is it good for kids or is it the right thing? Does it, you know, that's the thing the expert syndrome causes is this idea yeah. of we'll yeah. wait and see what happens to you if you say it before I say it, or right. I may not be credible if I say it and I'm wrong. What if I'm wrong? I'm like, yeah. how can your story be wrong? You right. know, that's why I always encourage authors to put your story in there. You're the only part of it that actually matters more than anything else because <laughs> that lens is going to help more people than if you just share your knowledge in your head. Your knowledge in your head is only as valuable, particularly now with the age of the internet, as me taking an opportunity to Google it. But your unique perspective cannot be found on the internet. It comes from you. Exactly. Exactly. You offer a unique perspective. And in that, there's value. And this is particularly relevant as well, because one of the first messages I read this morning was somebody who'd commented on a recent article that I wrote that like... I did not expect this to happen. I've been writing online for 10 years, written hundreds of things. This article went viral and I didn't see it coming. But one of the first messages I read this morning, by the way, the overwhelming response to this article was positive, 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 positive. And I had this one lady who wrote to me this morning and she said, like, you don't even have a degree in psychology or criminology or whatever. Like she literally said, like, who the hell do you think you are? And I wanted to just like (laughs) for any message like that, I try to wait 24 hours because I'm just like, I want to give some thought to this. I don't want to react to it and say something I might regret. But I was just thinking like, I can't really hear you over all the positive feedback. And if I hadn't been, I don't know, motivated enough to put out my unique perspective, I mean, who knows? You know, I had so many positive messages come out of writing that article. And so many people were deeply touched because I put 
my heart out there on a topic that I cared about. And people sense that, you know, you're always going to get a little bit of riffraff to anything that catches a little bit of fire. I spoke with a police officer yesterday. His name's Chuck Ryland. He just published a book called Shots Fired. And he was like, you know, to be honest, I've been really surprised that no one has hated the book, that no one's hated on the book. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the book's good. Of course, they haven't hated on the book. It's, it's a meaningful thing. And you came from a place with really positive intentions. So I think as long as you have that positive intent, you shouldn't worry about being an expert. Just do it. Right. And I think, yeah, your article was really profound. I shared it and a lot of people that who don't know you or didn't know you, but, you know, trust when I share something. Not that I have much, you know, authority to share anything, but that, you know, they found your story really impactful and changed the conversation, you know, and I think because that's the way you were looking at it, they started to look at that, at it differently too. And I think that's the power, like what you said of writing, that it's something that you, if you had one conversation with somebody, you couldn't necessarily have the impact as writing because people can talk about it, share it, communicate about it, even debate about it. And like you said, there's always going to be somebody who has a dissenting opinion. If you're waiting for something to not have a dissenting opinion, you probably don't have an opinion. Right. Or you're not saying anything worthwhile, really. I mean, you're just, if you're only writing list articles of like 10 reasons that you need to visit Italy and stuff like that, like no one's going to care. But if you're putting yourself out there and really saying what matters to you, you're going to get some pushback for sure. I mean, I've gotten pushback on telling my story about going through anxiety. Like I've had people being like, oh, you just, I've literally had this at least five times. People being like, you're just trying to take advantage of the anxiety market and trying to capitalize on them. And I was like... (laughs) First of all, you can take a look at my bank account. <laughs> if that were true, <laughs> I would be living very differently than I do. But it's just nonsense. Like There are people with their own agendas, their own emotional issues with whatever that they bring to the table whenever they're arguing with you. Whenever they're really pushing back on you, it's more about them. It's not as much about you. Yeah. To talk about... This, I, this, the fears of having someone respond to you negatively. I've been working with Anne Maynard, our friend, who's a great editor, and she's helping me with my book about what makes a good teacher great. And I told her, I don't know why I have so much fear and anxiety about this particular book because it was really well received as a message. But I think for me, it's not, it's not about. I'm afraid someone will misinterpret what I've learned from children and that I wanted them to know that this is just my learning. This is not what they've told me. They didn't say, they didn't say, this is what I mean when I said that. I'm interpreting what I believe and how I've learned to interpret what kids say about what makes a good teacher great. And I think even that has caused me fear and I'm struggle with that, you know, being a writing coach and someone who's helping people with writing feel like even though I have plenty of experience and plenty of quote expertise that people want to 
to do that. But when haters show up, and I try not to respond at all unless it's positive in some way. But I remember the first time, because I'm not used to being public about my stories, but this particular one, when the TED Talk that we had done together, someone said something, you know, you just don't understand. If you were in an inner city school or you knew what these kids were like, I was like, how does listening change depending on where you go, where you work? Like, I just don't and, understand. And clearly, even hear the first, like, two sentences of your talk. Because you said straight up, like from inner city schools in Los Angeles. Right. It's right. Like, I mean, you can mitigate against that by explicitly stating up front, like, look, and you can do it in bold, like, disclaimer, <laughs> this is not what I'm interpreting. Uh, or like, these are open to multiple interpretations. This is just what I learned. It doesn't have to be what you learned. Like, don't read it. I don't, I mean, you might get some of that pushback, but I think a lot of the critiques, and there won't be many critiques, by the way. <laughs> There's um, not. There really it isn't. Be, it's in my head more than anything else. Right. It, it will be for every 100 critiques, for every 100 positive things that people say about the book, there will be one critique. And usually the person who takes the time to sit down and write out the critique is a little bit of a nut job. Yeah. You know, the other one, I should have just been silent because I ended up went, went back and edited the comment because I didn't take your rule into effect, like wait 24 hours to respond. Right. Somebody said, I can't stand a teacher who doesn't know how to speak or can't even use the words right or whatever. And I was like, oh man, you weren't even listening. If this, I hope you're not a teacher. You know, I can't imagine how your kids must feel if this is how you're, you yeah. know what I mean? Like you weren't listening to the message. And I wrote that and then I was like, oh, I went back and fixed it. And I, I just said, and I changed it to say something like, thank you for your valuable insights. It was helpful to hear that you want me to speak more clearly. That's thoughtful. Why don't you post your talk here and let us know if we should listen to it or critique it. <laughs> Funny. But right at the same time, what somebody had, like somebody who was, I don't know, I guess you call it, it's YouTube. So I don't know, a follower had responded to them already to like, jump on them. I was like, oh, I should have just been quiet. Like, I didn't have to do this. Like, that was the last thing I responded to negative. I just don't do it really uh, anymore. But I think that's a really good lesson for me. But I I say that to be vulnerable with the people who are like thinking about writing a book or, you know, having fear or wondering about all these things about being an expert or not knowing enough. I think the biggest mistake people make is not sharing their truth. And they try to share too much, too big of concepts, too many things, because they don't want to be not thought of knowing more or enough. Yeah. And yes, that's totally true. That is such a, a huge thing I see so often with authors who are like, the book's not finished. I have to keep including all my wisdom. And it's like, no, just stick to the one thing. You have more than one book in you. Chill out and nail this one. Don't include, like, stop talking. <laughs> There's confidence in quiet. And when you know when to shut up, like that is a good thing. And just to get back to the point of like, I think it's important to talk about tactically what can you do when you do get a negative review or a harsh comment or something. And I made a point. I know I keep referencing this kind of vaguely, but so for this Vegas shooting article that I just published, when I started to realize, oh, damn this thing is going to take off really quickly. I was like 
kind of glued to my computer, moderating the comments, kind of managing them. For the positive ones, I was like, sweet, cool. I didn't really usually reply to those. It was like, you know, deeper. All the negative ones that started coming in, I made sure to, and I learned this from Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss taught me this and it was served me really well. You always start a response to them with thank you. Thank you for this comment, which you did as well to the person who commented on your TED talk. Thank you. And, and for all of them, I offered, I said, this is a great perspective. And I would often agree with them. Like, I thought the article was flawed. Like, to be honest, I cranked it out in about an hour and a half because I've been writing about that's not to brag. I've just been writing about this for years. And so I just didn't expect it to take off. And so it, I knew it was flawed. I knew it had some problems. So I was taking in those negative comments, like, and being like, I agree with you. I'm going to make some changes based on this. And then I would invite them. Do you want to like help me fix this up? Because, you know, I value your input. And then for one person, I can't remember what they criticized me on, but I said, I just want to be sure that we're not misunderstanding each other and feel free to turn this down. If you would rather not, you can say no. But if you want to hop on the phone or email me just to make sure we're on the same page, like I'm more than open to that. And that set the tone for all other negative commenters, for any of them who saw that I was not here to fight. I was here to introduce a new perspective and something that just doesn't get the weight I think it deserves, rather than to say, let's argue about guns or, you know, kind of the common thing that happens in every other form. So I think saying thank you for the insight, hearing them, listening them, listening to what they have to say, and then offering to be a teammate and to collaborate. I had a guy email me. I put together this 10-day email sequence for people struggling with anxiety. So it's a free sequence and and it's just like, hey, for the next 10 days, if you focus on these areas, like you can cut your anxiety in half pretty easily. So one of the emails, it talks about diet and it talks about the things that you're eating. And the focus is mostly like, look, a lot of the times you're nutrient deficient in a few different things. And if you cut out these certain foods and eat these ones, like you can not overnight, but over time, you can start to replenish those nutrients and you'll feel better. And this guy wrote to me and he was like appalled that I had such a strong emphasis on protein and meat. And he was like, look, you know, I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, but there's a lot of research on plant-based diets that's, that's coming to the forefront and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I wrote back to him and I was, and his email was harsh. Like if you read this, you would have been like, damn, like he's it's kind of mean. And he I wrote back to him and I said, Thank you so much for doing this. I actually agree with you. You know, I wrote that email years ago and I've read the books that you're talking about, which was true. And I just have not gotten around to revising that email to shore it up and have a stronger emphasis on plant-based diets. Would you want to work with me to and collaborate and fix up this email. And he immediately did a 180 
and he was like, yes, like, let's do this. Thank you so much for the privilege. Like, I would love to participate in this. He did a fantastic job helping me rewrite that email. I incorporated his feedback. He and I still work on stuff together. He is going through all the comments that I got on the Vegas article. He put together a spreadsheet of the most valid critiques and how many times people criticized my article based on that. And we're working on a revised article together. So I think if you can think of commenters, people who criticize you, not like this is what Tim taught me is he said, the people who are your most like vocal critics can become your most vocal fans if you know how to play it right. And viewing those with some excitement as this is an opportunity to gain a fan rather than digging your heels in, trying to butt heads with them is the way to go. I totally agree. I wish I would have thought more like that one when they've, I just wasn't prepared for negative reviews because I just didn't even think anybody listened, to be honest. No one is. And here's the irony, right? So when you write something, people give it a lot of weight. They don't know you. They just are reading this thing that's been printed down. And we have this bias that if something's been written, if you hear somebody say something, it might be true, but it's probably not. If you hear more than one person say something, eh, it's probably true. But if you hear, if you read it, it's true, right? That's our bias. And so the irony is, is that's still playing in our heads when we're reading like YouTube comments that are written by 12 year olds who have zero life experience. If it's articulated well enough, we're like, gosh, geez, this person really has a has a point. And it's like, you don't even know who's on the other end of that comment. It could be somebody trolling you. It could be somebody who is just pissed off at that moment. You caught him on a bad day. So if you sink your heels in and want to butt heads with them, that may be like their stress relief for the day. They just want to take their stress out on somebody and it happens to be a stranger on the internet. Right. You know And I think some of it is because if there's a little bit of potential truth to it, instead of resisting like, you know, I have or others probably do, just accept it as feedback. Like, and that's the thing I realized that's what's happening here is these are some really either stressed out teachers or former teachers or people who work in an environment where they just don't feel supported. They don't know how they're supposed to do their job. They feel like there's no way to to make this work. That's all they're saying. You know, they're, they're not saying... I'm not good or I didn't do a good job or they don't believe any of this. They're just, they don't know how to say that about themselves. Like, look, I wish I knew what to do. I'm stuck. Help. But, right, you know, and I think that's one of the things I learned is like, oh, I need to write this specifically, some sections in the book about inner city, but like talk about it in a way, because I think people have this idea of what inner city is. You know, I don't know why, but I think what, what it really means is that there's a lot more challenges when the people that show up every day have to work really hard just to be there. Like yeah. just to have a, a couple of good meals in a day, just so they can get to school without having to go home with some violence. They have other challenges than just learning. But I think that most people think of inner city as something from television. They don't think of it as just imagine having more challenges to your day than you already have. And then carrying, you know, 40 more pounds on your head and then things strapped to your legs and then the blindfolded. That's what it feels like to be working or living in inner city. It's just different. It's not what you're used to. I think that's the other thing I'm learning is like, hmm, that's a good feedback. And I think the other thing is one of my first books, even though there's 53 five-star reviews, whatever, and the book, 
I was happy with the simplicity of it. It was a simple book. But the thing about it was that when the moment someone critiqued my editing, which they must have gotten an early copy that was really bad because it wasn't edited very well in the beginning, I stopped trying to promote it. I stopped trying to get reviews. I just felt totally silenced. But I think part of it, because there was small bits of truth in there, and instead of addressing going, you know, right, I did, I did. I fixed it. I edited it. I resubmitted it. Instead of responding to him going, thank you so much. Your feedback was helpful, like you said. And moving forward and reclaim that, I just shrank away. And I didn't know that early enough to understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now you know. Now I know. And I think, you know what's funny? More people, when I ask them to give me feedback before we work on a coaching relationship in their book, I'm asking what their biggest fear is. And a lot of them is, what if it's not reviewed well? You know what? I can't promise you that. There's nothing I can do about that. All I can do is ensure you find the right story, the best story that you can tell. I can't you know, help people not review it poorly. I can help you be reviewed well because you're getting people that care about you and care about your message, but I can't keep people from reviewing it poorly. So. Yeah. There's a deep primal fear, uh, especially in men who tend to write more nonfiction books than women, which is not a sexist statement. It's just kind of a fact that men's deepest fear is being ridiculed and rejected, is being laughed at, basically. And so I've seen this across the board with some of the smartest, most accomplished people I've ever met who've like started billion dollar companies and are academics and whatever or what you know, like whatever their background may be they're still worried that people will laugh at them for putting out a book that is not that good or that they'll be rejected because no one will want to read their book and so they tend to you know not only worry about a lack of reviews but a lack of sales, a lack of validation from the market that, hey, maybe this idea isn't very good, or maybe I'm not very good at doing this or whatever. And yeah, so I mean, that's super common with everybody. And you're going to find that even if you have some success as an author, you still view some of these titans who just are some of the world's best authors as somebody you're never going to live up to. So, or you can. You know, I hear, sorry, sorry, one more thing is I help a lot of authors with marketing their books and I hear from disturbing number of them, I want to sell a million copies of my book in the first two or three years. And I tell them, you're going to have to buy 995,000 copies of your book because that just doesn't happen. It's like once, you know, I don't know how many there's a few dozen books that will sell crazy well, if that, you know, maybe just a handful every year that sell millions of copies in the nonfiction category. And there are anomalies that have caught the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. You know, back in the day, I've got a friend who she was on Oprah, she's friends with Oprah. Her book was a number one New York Times bestseller and was on the bestseller list for six months. And she sold over a million copies of the book. And she told me, you know, back in those days when Oprah had all the power in the media, 
she called my publisher and she said, if you don't have at least 800,000 copies of this book, then you're wrong. And because and that's how many it's going to sell at least. And but now, you know, she was on Oprah recently on Super Soul Sunday and got on Facebook like that is the new Oprah, right? She was like, I sold about a thousand copies of my book there. Now, a thousand copies of your book is great. Yeah. It's not a million. It's not even close to a million. It's nowhere close. Right. So letting go of these delusions of grandeur and (laughs) recognizing that not only accomplishing the act of publishing a book is, is a huge feat in itself, but any readers at all who take the time to get through your book is huge. And it can be more impactful and have more ripple effects than you think. A million is an arbitrary number that, frankly, most authors just are never even going to touch, not even over a 10-year career. So just let that go. I think it has a lot to do with our obsession about numbers in general. Or, you know, yeah. What does it really mean? You know, Oh, you want to be wealthy? Well, then probably you should do something other than be an author or <laughs> use the book as a leverage to grow or do something worth talking about. I tell authors like, and I say this in sort of jest, but when they start listing off, you know, it'd be great to sell a million copies to be on the New York Times bestseller list, the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and to be on Oprah's couch, blah, blah, blah. As soon as they start saying that stuff, I'm like, look, you know what would actually be easier for you to do is six months of therapy and then publish your book because you have some issues going on because you want something other than like all those accolades like because you're going to get those accolades and you're still going to be disappointed. I know multiple people who've gotten those things and they either lost the money or they're still unhappy. They're still chasing that. Like there's deeper emotional issues at play. If you want to be a celebrity in the author world, it shouldn't be the goal. It should be a byproduct of having done a lot of things right for a long time and maybe capturing what the culture is going through at that moment that all of a sudden this book is the exact, the only book that tons and tons of people have been searching and waiting for it. It says something that's unconventional. It defies conventional wisdom. It makes people feel these really strong feelings. It makes them feel awesome to brag about it, whatever. It's not something you aim for. It just happens. And it only happens to like one or two of thousands and thousands and thousands of authors every single year. Right. You know, what's really interesting is that when I, I've really worked on this model of helping people with books in a way that I think's important to me and that I've consistently remained true to my message, which is this book's value mainly comes from if it transforms you, the author. If you're not looking for this book to transform you during the process of creating it, then don't expect a transformation to happen for the people that read it on the other end. It's just information. It's just a collection of your thoughts. And they're probably mostly thoughts of other people that you've just acquired over time. And then you're going to reshare them. Like Mm -hmm. People don't need that. People need you. And if you can show them you, your information, your learning, your way of thinking, then you have a shot at changing and transforming yourself through this process. You might see the world differently. You might 
hopefully see yourself differently. So, I mean, I don't necessarily sell courses. I, I sell the opportunity for them to get something that's inside of them that's causing them to struggle at keep them up at night or they always felt like they wanted to share, but they just haven't. Because I think that helps them feel different. They walk out with a good quality book. They feel like it's good. If they have an agent, I don't discourage them or if they have a publisher, you know, but I go realize that you're pleasing them, not yourself. So be okay with that. Yep. Yeah. But if you're doing this for you, you could have a profound impact not only on the world, but on yourself. So I really appreciate that. And I think I'll keep doing that. It might be the slow game. I might not be the person making, you know, seven figures selling courses to make a publisher book and hack through Amazon. <laughs> That's just not my thing. I really want to no. see people change and transform. And I've seen it happen to young people when I used to teach in the classroom and watch them hold their book in their hand and see their eyes light up. And they realize this is something I created and I'm sharing with the world. And I don't have to fear it anymore or worry that. And it's, yeah, I mean, and that's such a healthier perspective on that framing is what every author should hear, right? Is to, I mean, to live in this time where you can actually do that and do it for yourself. That's still so novel and new. That's only happened in like the last 10 years that that was even really possible. Right. And I mean, maybe even more recent, to be honest, that it was actually feasible for an individual to do that on their own terms and to focus. I like to point to the most successful on the planet right now, which is J.K. Rowling. She wrote those books for herself. She openly says, I did it for my own amusement. I wasn't worried about what other people were doing. And it, your best work ultimately comes from that place anyway of focusing on yourself, being selfish in a way of of not worrying what other people are going to think. But like, how can I either transform myself? How can I come out of this better? How can I make something that I'm really proud of that is really enjoyable for me to go through this process and recognizing like the process doesn't end here, right? Like a lot of authors have the J.D. Salinger fantasy where they're going to put out one book and the world is going to recognize their genius and they're going to coast through the rest of their life like that. And it's just not how the world works for pretty much anybody, you yeah. know? Or for anything, not just books. Yeah, but, right. Um, it's the American Idol fantasy. Right. You're going to turn into Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen. And I think that people don't realize that to the same reason that people want to win the lottery or win anything where they don't, they think it's going to magically make things better. It's not. It just doesn't. Mm -mm. And I think for me, what I'm learning, it's humbling to be listening to so many authors tell their stories and then help them say, but I, I hear something else is I'm helping just reveal to themselves the things they haven't wanted to talk about or help them think about it differently. And they stop thinking about the book. No one comes to me who uh, that wants to help with book and go, oh, yeah, I'm, I want to crush it. I go, oh, there's lots of places you can go. You don't need to pay me to help you crush it. Um, <laughs> right. you know, I'm not going to help you build the billion dollar or whatever, X, Y, Z. But what I am going to help people do is find the truth that's inside of them that they've been afraid to tell. And I'm going to gently guide them across the finish line. So I really appreciate that. We could probably chat all day. And you know, I almost forgot that we're doing a podcast. Um, <laughs> what, before we go, what book are you reading now that's striking you or that you want to read that you're like, hmm, that's on my mind? 
What book am I reading now? I am reading The Childhood Roots of Adult Happiness. And it's really good. And so that's on my mind. And then I can't remember this the title of this other book I'm reading. I heard it recommended by Ray Dalio. He said these brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning historians tried to make a comprehensive book of the entire history of civilization and condense it into a hundred pages, which I was like, that sounds Awesome because I get so bored with history (laughs) and especially long history books. And I know a lot of that is a lot of people love history. I just always kind of found it dry and painful the way that authors tell it. So I've been reading that one and it's pretty cool. Cool. I'm going to have to check that one. I'm like you, even after being a history teacher, it was like the most painful part. I was like, oh my (laughs) God, I have to get smarter at this, but I don't want to be. Um, I know. It was mostly because of the like the memorization of dates and like the Boston Tea Party. Even when I was in high school, I was like, "This is bullshit." Like we're not hearing the other side of the like. I kind of realized that oh, the winner tells the winner writes the history books, right? So you only hear this one perspective for the most part, and that's that's what I actually like about this other history book. If I can remember that, I'll send it to you. Or I'll, if I find it. What am I saying? I'll I'll send it to you. <laughs> but it, this is what I like about this history book is they acknowledge that up front. They're like, look, this dynamic exists. Like, is there any point to history? Like, they kind of go through all the arguments against history at the beginning, and they kind of irreverently say, "Still, we proceed, <laughs> right. and on we go." Yeah. <laughs> One of the books that really struck me was a book called Indian Givers. It was a professor of mine I had in college that recommended it, and he actually didn't even have a degree. He just happened to be the curator of the Bowers Museum, a really smart mm-hmm. guy. But the book Indian Givers was about all the plants, food and plants from the Americas, how it's changed and impacted history. And it just so the, the author talks about like, I can only remember one at the top of my head. He's like, tomato. Tomato is a native to America, this plant. It wasn't grown anywhere else. You didn't find it, you know, growing in India. So, but think about all the foods that you've loved and all the foods you presumed were, you know, Italian or X, Y, Z. He goes, without that one food, there would be not, those cultural foods would probably be non-existent. And then he talked about another one. He said, potatoes. He actually, that's another food native to the Americas. Think about the impact that's had on the world and, you know, the famine from Ireland. So it was interesting. It was an interesting Hmm. perspective on history through foods and crops. And so I thought that was interesting. I was like, why don't people write more books like this? Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. And do you know, there's some author, I cannot remember their name, but they write books on just like salt and just... So they write about one particular type of food. So like cod, and they will dive super deep on the history of that food and how it's impacted the world. Another great one on the history of the food is that's told in a really fun way is a book called The Fish That Ate the Whale, which is about the history of the banana and how this one entrepreneur basically made the banana into one of the biggest fruits in the world, which is like an incredibly difficult thing because it's got such a short shelf life. And back then they were carrying bananas 
on trains and stuff and through very difficult conditions and all this stuff. So history can be made fun. It's just so rarely is. And especially in school that I think I still have this aversion to it as an adult because it was so conditioned into me that this is a boring, painful topic. (laughs) It is boring. I feel bad. Now that I'm not a teacher, I could be a little more vocal, but man, I always thought it was awful. One of the ways I, when I was publishing books, I started 2008 publishing kids' books on Amazon back. I didn't know what I was doing. I just figured out and put it on CreateSpace. But one of the books that was created was, I didn't have to, but I was kind of like avoiding teaching like colonization to eighth graders. They already learned it in fifth grade. It wasn't exciting then to talk about the colonists. So I was like, we got it. What's cool? What's interesting to me? And you know those worst case scenario books? Have you seen those at all? Where they're Mm-mm. like, mm, it's a worst, it's like a little handbook and it's basically how to hotwire a car. How to jump, you know, from a second story window and not get hurt. How, how to, you know, wow. fight off a bear. I was like, these are cool. You know, I was like, but I can't teach kids this. <laughs> I shouldn't be. I mean, or could I? should I? Maybe I should. Sure you can. But then I was yeah. like, well, what could I do? I like this simple. It's like eight simple steps. Interesting things. I go, what if we created a worst case scenario book for colonists, like for like Roanoke, you know, the lost, you know, group of people. Oh, that's awesome. So, so what if we yeah. just let them research what? could have happened to them and then create a worst case scenario to like, so they did, they created some amazing things like how to escape a shark attack. They're like, the ship didn't make landfall. They had to escape sharks. So how to, you know, they talked about, they researched that or how to escape quicksand. That was the one that was, uh, you know, another one. They, they just did all these different things and it was fascinating. Um, wow. Maybe more for me than them, but we did another one when we studied 12 years of slave, which is a hard book for an eighth grader to get through. It's really old language and it's, you know, it's so far removed, but we did an underground railroad survival handbook because what they realized was that even if you had the moral courage and the opportunity, how would you live? How would you survive? What would you come in contact with? You know, how would you deal with a wound or yeah. how would you boil water or what would you do for warmth? You know, and that quicksand one was an example of a kid said, I want to talk about quicksand. I was like, okay, come on, you know, let's got to be something that they would have encountered. And he's like, Mr. Tyronis, you know, did you know that X percentage of slave actually escaped south and not north? And during that time, they went to the Everglades and actually this was a real problem. And he had brought in sand and he brought in a bowl of water and showed me how it works and how you have to escape it and why it works. And I was like, okay, you proved your point. But it was really great. It was real learning. He was like yeah. finding something he cared enough about to learn. And, you know, but school just wasn't like, I did that because honestly, I was bored. And those, those honestly are where the best things come from. We're not bored enough, right? right? We should be more bored. Those books, I don't yeah. know if anybody buys those books. They're still on Amazon. Uh, you know, but those are the ones that, you know, when you could hold in your hand and teachers would come visit and say, how could we make history more interesting? I'm like, oh, do anything, anything besides teaching it. Do something different and it'll be more yeah. interesting than what you're doing. Again, Dude. I appreciate you giving me your time. If people wanted to learn more about you, Charlie, where would they go to find you? How would they connect with you? Yeah, just head to my website, charliehone.com. I'm also on Amazon. So if you want to grab a copy of my book, that's, uh, you know, thumbs up for me. So awesome. Thanks for having me on as well. This is great. Thank you so much. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.